On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Daniel Hummel about the rise and fall of dispensationalism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is dispensationalism? Is it different in America versus other contexts? What is the history behind dispensationalism from 1830 to today? Why did dispensationalism become so popular? How influential was it really? What are the main beliefs behind dispensationalism? Did these change over time? And what ultimately caused its demise and so much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. But we, when we think about serious thinking, uh, oftentimes what comes to mind is like sober-minded, very calm, very quiet, maybe in a, in a room with a fireplace and lots of books, and you're not talking to people, and you're just very serious about everything. And there is a sense that we want to promote very rigorous thinking in that way, but we also want to promote serious uh, seriousness about particular intellectual virtues. So we singled out a couple of them that we always try to remind our listeners and ourselves of, because we need it too, and those are things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So naturally, critical thinking, I think, is what comes to mind when people hear serious, but we want to also be serious about things like charity and curiosity. So charity is just actually engaging people's arguments at, at a fair way, so not just assuming the worst, assuming that if there's a problem there that they, the person who holds it probably sees that too and probably has a reason for it. So let me hear your best shot. Uh, curiosity is also just simply being interested in why other people think the way they think and not simply assuming the worst about them. And naturally, the cheerful confessionalism part, not all of our listeners are confessional. Me, me and Brandon, who started uh, the podcast, are. Uh, and one thing we noticed was a disposition among especially internet people to have sort of confessional stuff in their bio is to be just total jerks. And we want to say, no, you don't have to be that way. You can be cheerful about what you believe and hold and say, this is a good thing. So that's what we're trying to encourage others, ourselves, and everybody in between uh, to do. And yeah, so today I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Dan Hummel about dispensationalism. So he's got a new book. Let me see the date of this releasing. Uh, coming 5-4-2023, so May 4th in 2023, you'll be able to get a copy of this. So depending on when you're listening, maybe you're listening in May of 2023 now, you can go get a copy of it. I'll put a link in the bio. It's called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. And I would guess that almost all of our listeners are super interested in this topic because it's fascinating. We have a lot of people who used to be dispensationalists and changed their minds. Um, I mean, I went to a university that was largely shaped by this. Uh, I would say the imagination of pretty much everybody there was heavily dispensational in these sort of end timesy sort of ways. So I'm looking forward to talking about sort of the history and what that looks like. Before we do that, Dan, give me a little bit of background. Where are you? What are you doing now? And then once we've got sort of that down, just tell me, what was the rationale for dedicating years of your life to thinking about this topic and writing on it? Well, good to be with you, Jordan. Um, 
and uh, not only de years of my life, but the COVID years as well. So sort of apocalyptic in the world and <laughs> uh, contemplating the apocalypse in my in my research. Um, uh, so I, um, I'm currently in Madison, Wisconsin, and I work at a Christian study center that serves the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a large public university of about 45,000 students. Um, the center is called Upper House. I'm the director of university engagement. And um, it, what I do on a daily basis looks a lot like what an InterVarsity uh, staff member would do for a campus, but we have a building and we uh, we do stuff in our building as opposed to being uh, on campus. So uh, I really enjoy my job. I got my PhD in religious history at UW-Madison, where I wrote a dissertation on Christian Zionism, so a topic that's somewhat similar to uh, dispensationalism, though it's, it's complicated there too. Um, and it, backing up even further, uh, I grew up a missionary kid. Um, uh, my dad has an MDiv from Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, grew up, uh, after being a missionary, um, landed in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where many evangelical organizations, uh, uh, headquarter out of, um, probably my closest connection to anyone super famous in the dispensational world is, uh, in Colorado Springs. I attended the same mega church as Jerry Jenkins, who co-authored the Left Behind novels, um, uh, I, I only knew that. I mean, it's a massive church um, in Colorado Springs. I only knew that because every once in a while, when one of the new books would come out, um, we'd we'd like recognize Mr. Jenkins, like in the like we'd all clap for him or something. So um, we knew he was uh, among us uh, somewhere there. Um, so um, I'm no longer part of. I don't know if I ever was sort of consciously a dispensationalist. I grew up in that world for sure, and just sort of assumed a lot of the categories. Uh, of the theology, and I knew a lot of the names and institutions, um, but I'm certainly not there now. I really appreciate the upbringing I had, and um, much of my family would still, uh, I mean, this is one of the things we'll get into. You know, most people who are dispensationalists don't like wear that name as a badge of honor in a way that maybe some other theological traditions really root themselves um, in their systematic theology. Uh, dispensationalists uh, don't necessarily do that. They see um, the system as as sort of just revealing what's in the Bible um, and and nothing more. And so um, I was never a uh, necessarily a conscious dispensationalist. But today I, I I'm an evangelical Christian. I attend an evangelical free church here in Madison, um, but uh, but I'm no longer part of that world. So uh, I I find it endlessly fascinating um, to study. So uh, as I mentioned, I, I studied Christian Zionism um, in my PhD program, and one of the things that came out of that was doing a lot of deep reading in the history of sort of theological traditions that were very interested in the Jewish people or in Israel. And of course, dispensationalism, or maybe not of course, but as we'll get into, dispensationalism has a special place for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in its eschatology. And... Um, and that led me to want to understand more broadly what dispensationalism is and sort of how it's functioned in the broader history of the American church. Um, when I went to go look for surveys of dispensationalism, just historical surveys, um, I found many of them to be very old. Uh, a lot of them were, um, there hasn't really been a full survey for about 50 years of dispensationalism. Many of them were written in the 60s and 70s when this was 
for various historical reasons, um, including the popularization of dispensational eschatology, um, this became a hot topic in the church. But um, realizing that there were just there'd been a lot written in the last fifty years on fundamentalism, on apocalypticism, on evangelicalism, sort of related. Uh, areas of uh, knowledge, um, I set out to say I want to write a history of dispensationalism using sort of as up-to-date scholarship as I can, um, and also talking about all the really interesting things that have happened in the last 40, 50 years that these surveys obviously couldn't write about because they were published before that. Um, so that's that's what got me into the into the topic. Okay, awesome. So before we get started, I do want to just set the table a little bit. When we say dispensationalism, what are we referring to? Is it America-centric specific, or is it something that is universally the same across different places? So just what are we talking about? Is it the same everywhere? So I guess if we're talking about a certain segment, then just clarify that. Yeah, so um, when we get into the history, the, the origins of a lot of the dispensational theology is actually from the British Isles, but very quickly it becomes uh, the main arena where it becomes popular and systematized is in America, is in the United States and Canada, um, mostly the United States, but there are, there are some Canadian um, important players too. Um, and that's really where it, it, it grows and matures and becomes very influential in the construction of seminaries and, and churches and denominations um, because of the uh, passionate support for global missions that many dispensationalists um, have displayed over the generations. There are dispensationalists all over the world. Uh, the missionaries that come out of um, particularly many independent uh, mission agencies um, w would more likely than not for a long time in American history be carrying with them a dispensational theology. Um, and so you can find dispensationalists in India, in Africa, um, in Latin America, that's changed pretty significantly in the last few decades. There, there are far fewer today than there were, but there are certainly, even in those places, their history um, would trace through sort of dispensationalism. Um, I really think uh, the most important context for understanding the development of dispensationalism is the United States. And I actually think that you can think about it regionally as well, and that there's a story in the Midwest and sort of northern uh, America. There's a story for the southern United States, and there's a story for the western United States in how dispensationalism develops. And if you, if your listeners have just a general map of sort of important places for conservative evangelicalism, some of them being maybe Chicago and the Moody um, emphasis there or presence there, think of Southern California and uh, you know, Biola and, Fuller, Biola and Fuller Seminary. You think of Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. Um, these are each, it's not, it's no accident that there are particular institutions that come up in each of these different regions in the country at different points in the story. Um, so I really think there's an interesting regional story within the U S. Um, but, but to get to your, you know, just to answer your question one more time, uh, there, it is a U.S. centric tradition, even though you can find people that believe in different parts of it, all the whole, or just the eschatology, um, all around the world. Good. That's helpful. So I do want to hear the story about these uh, particular, I mean, naturally I'm interested in America because that's where I live, but if it starts in the British Isles, you're, you're welcome to talk about a lot of that too. I, I think it's fascinating. So just give me your crash course. If you're giving a lecture somewhere, a uh, story on how dispensationalism starts and how it mutates and spreads. Yeah. 
Well, the, the probably the most famous figure to be associated with dispensationalism is John Nelson Darby, who was born in 1800, died in 1882, uh, was um, a British. He was English by birth, but he was born in Ireland, so he was Anglo-Irish. Um, he was the founder of the uh, Plymouth Brethren, or one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren, and ended up taking on the leadership of the Exclusive Brethren. So, a very complicated history of, uh, you know, fraction, uh, factional um, dissenter groups in in England. But um, he was a prolific writer. He was he had been a clergyman in the Anglican Church, but but broke away from that to found the Brethren. Um, he probably wrote over 19 million words, um, and many of them in letters, but many others in prose. And he wrote hymn books. He wrote all types of stuff. And the reason we start the story with him is because he developed a number of distinctive uh, views on how to read the Bible that turned into a theological uh, worldview. I don't want to call it a system because I don't think Darby ever systematized what he was in a way that that we think about systemization, like a systematic theology uh, book today. But um, there there were you know possibly some contradictions in what he taught. He also wrote a lot all the time, so he wasn't always consistent. But um, there's a couple key things that he contributed that turned into dispensationalism in the 20th century, and that's one thing to say about dispensationalism is the term itself is not um, around until the 1920s. And that's an interesting part of the story. So you would, if you called Darby, if he, you know, was around or you've traveled back in time, he wouldn't know what you meant by a dispensationalist. He'd never call himself that. But some of the distinctive teachings that he taught um, were um, a couple of stark divisions that he was drawing that other Christians had not drawn. One was between Israel and the church. And, um, what he meant by that was actually going to the Bible and where the Bible ever says the word Israel, which it does a lot, um, particularly in the old Testament, but it also does it in the new Testament. He insisted that that, uh, reference was to the Jewish people, uh, no matter where it was found. And so if you think about prophecies that relate to Israel, many Christians today would, would see the church as the fulfillment of those prophecies. Darby insisted that that was not the case, that any prophecy related to Israel meant that literal Jewish people in the you know historic homeland of the Jewish people uh, would be fulfilling those prophecies. Um, so he distinguished between Israel and the church, and the church was a much uh, different entity that had actually very little said about it in the Old Testament. This is for Darby. Um, and had a very particular role in the world, which was to call people um, out of the world into the church, which was a heavenly people, um, a, a people destined not for the earth, but for, for heaven. And so the Israel church distinction turned in and was really animated by a, a, what I would call a dualism between heaven and earth as well, where um, Israel is intended for the earth, those are, that's God's earthly chosen people, and the church is intended for heaven and is God's heavenly people. Um, Darby read this into the Bible in every single way you could imagine, and he explained it, and he, ha he gained a following of people who thought this way. One uh, consequence of this reading is that the millennial kingdom, uh, or the kingdom of God in general, uh, was seen by Darby to be entirely in the future. And, and run by the Israel, um, run by Jewish people. Um, and so unlike many Christians, uh, including Catholics and most Protestants, 
the kingdom of God was not the church. The kingdom of God was in the future and was something that uh, Christians were anticipating or hoping would come, but were not part of. Um, the really distinctive teaching of the rapture is part of his way of making this all work, which is that at some point uh, unannounced in the future, God will take the heavenly people out of the world, that is the church, to resume his work with the earthly chosen people, Israel. Um, and so that becomes a very important uh, distinction um, uh, as well. And the final one I'll say is, is where the term dispensationalism comes from. To make this all work, uh, this, this sort of reading, um, Darby divided all of history into particular dispensations, is what he called them, which were particular ways God related to humanity and uh, basically called humanity to um, be his people. And Darby had, uh, depending on, Darby usually had seven, sometimes he, he waffled on this, but had seven dispensations, the sixth one being the church uh, age, um, and the seventh being the kingdom. Uh, other later dispensationalists had different um, numbers. So there, there's not a, it, we really land on seven. That's sort of when it, when it becomes systematized, there's seven. Um, but there are other people who had different numbers. And so that's where the term comes from. Uh, and this is in sharp distinction to what would later become the, one of the more covenantalist uh, view, or, or it was around during that time. But this is, becomes the, the main um, contention point between covenantalist, reformed people, and dispensationalists. Is, is, there continu is there more continuity or discontinuity in how we talk about God and humanity? And dispensationalists would go for discontinuity, and reformed covenantalists would tend to emphasize continuity. And so um, those are some of the things that Darby taught. He had his following in the British Isles. Uh, it was small. It was radical. It was outside of the normal bounds of society. And he found a huge following uh, over time in the United States. And there's a lot of interesting uh, points to that story. Um, I'll stop here to, to let, let me know where you want me to go, Jordan. But um, that's, that's sort of the key founder of a lot of these ideas, Starby. Yeah. So I, I am especially interested, I mean, just personally. So I, for my undergrad, I was like a pastoral leadership major or whatever, and one of the courses we had to take was like we called an inductive Bible study methods or something like that. And one of the required texts was a Schofield reference Bible. Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in people like Schofield and Ryrie, uh, Moody and Dallas and these places. Like, what is it that causes them to grab hold of dispensationalism and then to re and why does it flourish so much in these places? Is this because of dispensationalism, is it other factors that are helping it to be strong? Like I, I have no idea what's going on here that's causing this. So I'd yeah. love to hear your analysis. Yeah, that's great. And w where did you go to school? <sighs> so the school must not be named, but yeah, I went to Liberty oh. University. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, good to know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is a perennial question. Why does this sort of fringe theology... Um, turn into something that millions of Americans end up seeing as, you know, the obvious way um, to uh, read the Bible and and the theology behind it is is so obvious to them. Um, one key episode is is near the 
end of Darby's life, and he dies in 1882. In the 1860s and 1870s, of course, in the U.S., uh, the U.S. is going through a civil war and is going through massive changes in church and in society. And one of the key uh, reasons that Darby's teachings become appealing to some Christians in the U.S. is because his views on the church being a heavenly people, his ecclesiology, is actually quite appealing to many, uh, many people after the Civil War as a way to be able to evacuate their religious tradition from um, politics and from having to weigh in on the key issues of re reconstruction, racial justice, all those types of things um, of the given day. So you actually find some of the earliest proponents of Darby's teachings in the U.S. are border state evangelicals, people in Missouri or Maryland, who are looking, who have very complicated relationships to the Civil War and are looking for ways to get out of it. Um, another related uh, factor is the appeal of global missions in the late 19th century to American evangelicals, American Christians, and the way that uh, people like Dwight Moody, the big revivalist of, of the era, understood the need for global missions and the need to basically create unity in the United States in order to launch a global missions effort. And so Moody, much like these border state evangelicals, um, is eager for ways of talking about the church and the role of the church that are very much about conversion and what he would consider heavenly pursuits, pursuits that are very religious in nature, aren't getting caught up in uh, in society or in politics, in government relations, in social issues. And so Moody becomes a huge champion of um, of dispensationalism, of, of those the he wouldn't also know what dispensationalism is, but of the teachings of people like Darby, uh, Moody becomes a large champion of them. And Moody's network is absolutely vast. The only other sort of comparable network that we might be more familiar to us today is the Billy Graham network. Billy Graham was a really important figure. He also had thousands of people, leaders, pastors, evangelists in his wake um, who basically carried forth a Billy Graham type Christianity. Dwight Moody had the same thing. And Dwight Moody was, um, he was never a theologian, but he really internalized a lot of Darby's teachings, um, particularly around the church and missions. And so um, Moody takes us up to the, you know, 1900, uh, 1900 or so. And by then there are, there's a whole network of Bible colleges, of mission agencies, of churches that are basically assuming dispensational understandings, not just of the end times. It's often uh, assumed that dispensationalism is just an eschatology. It's a whole system of reading the Bible that produces a particular ecclesiology, even a particular soteriology that's very much about um, uh, what, another way to, that has been, has been called more recently is sort of a mental ascent uh, salvation, which is all that requires one to be saved is to pray a sinner's prayer or to th even think a prayer, um, uh, basically calling Jesus your savior. Um, and that's very appealing to revivalists. Like there's, there's almost nothing more, uh, you can imagine different traditions have a sacramental part of salvation, or there's the whole uh, sort of, do you need to see Jesus as your Lord and your savior? Do you need to sort of have a submission of the will before you're truly saved? These are things that come up in later in the story as, as major departure points, but, uh, dispensationalists are well known and become very popular, um, for promoting a, what they call a free grace tradition, a tradition where, uh, grace is dispensed as easily as, as anyone can claim it. And um, th this becomes sort of the de facto way that um, people in the Moody Network and then more broadly revivalists going to Billy Sunday and even Billy Graham uh, understand salvation. And, and that's why you can have an altar call 
at a at a at a revival and have thousands of people come up and pray a prayer and the revivalist thinks um okay all these people are safe now like i've done my work i can move on um so that that becomes a major part and that that's not the eschatology that's not the fun rapture end time stuff but it's a major part of the dispensationalist tradition um that gets infused into american evangelicalism and that can take us up to the it, it just that that tradition continues to grow and it becomes sort of one of the key parts of the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s um, but what's really interesting is is once you get to the fundamentalist period uh, fundamentalism is not just dispensationalist that is one faction among many factions um, and it's not even the most important faction um, and you start seeing there you start seeing this pressure they're sort of in a pressure cooker with other conservative protestants um, in the 1920s and 30s, where the, the drive to systematize their theology, it really takes hold. And actually, the term dispensationalism comes out in 1928 by a reformed uh, activist theologian named Philip Morrow, who is trying to look around for who to blame for the failures of fundamentalism. Uh, this is in the late 1920s. This is after a lot of fundamentalists have had to leave their denominations, after the Scopes trial, after these things that have basically pointed a lot of fundamentalists to saying, boy, we didn't succeed at what we tried to do in the last decade. And Philip Morrow looks around and he identifies um, these fundamentalists who talk about a kingdom that isn't here, that'll only come uh, in the future, um, that are preoccupied with end times speculation. And he says, I don't know what to call these people. I'm going to call them dispensationalists because, um, because of how I understand their theology. And so it, it, it starts as a term of opprobrium, and it soon becomes uh, a term that the dispensationists themselves take up as they systematize their theology. And so Schofield's Bible uh, that you mentioned, that comes out in 1909. It's sort of a product of the first few generations of, of uh, people who are really thinking deeply about this after Darby, um, trying to systematize it in a way. Um, Schofield's Bible is very popular, um, sells a million copies in this first decade. Um, but Schofield dies in 1921. He would never have responded to being called a dispensationalist. The term wasn't in existence when he was around. Um, what becomes dispensationalism is very familiar, would be familiar to Schofield. Um, but he, his project is not to systematize or to set apart a certain system. Um, he, he really thought he was just being uh, a faithful Christian um, with these particular assumptions bring, being brought to the text. Um, but that's really, by the 1930s is where we really get a dispensationalist tradition and a system that is competing as strongly with its conservative counterparts or rivals as it is with modernists or liberals who you know, really don't care at all about dispensationalism uh, as a theology. Um, it's much more the conservative reformed and, and related uh, traditions, Pentecostals and others, that um, really shape uh, these debates around dispensationalism. So I, I want to know, was there anything in specific that made dispensationalism seem so militant on particular doctrines? Because it seems to me, in the different contexts that I've been on, dispensationalists are way more serious about some of these tertiary issues, which everybody else I talk to, like eschatology, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. You can believe a whole bunch of things. But if I talk to a dispensationalism, oh, no, you have to have this particular view of the millennium, uh, this particular view of the tribulation, this particular view of a whole host of package uh, of doctrines, or you are in serious air. So like, was there something that caused them to be so dogmatic about all these things to say these are so super important that other people don't think the same way? Yeah. Um, 
Well, of course, the dispensationalists would say these aren't secondary matters. These are, you know, core to what they understand. So, uh, but but the point's taken. There there are very um, precise views on um, particularly end time stuff. Uh, particularly, um, are you pre tribulational rapture or post tribulational rapture? Things like that. Um, the way I try to read a lot of that is as. Um, um, sort of where I ended the story uh, before that question. Within the fundamentalist world, um, this this type of precision in theology was really the coin of the realm. This is what would identify one as a serious Christian, as a someone who took the Bible seriously, as someone who had very precise understandings of what the Bible taught, um, and um, and someone who could also draw distinctions and and sort of show where others are in error. And so I, I don't want to single out dispensationalists in this. I think if you go back and you read 1930s, 1940s uh, fundamentalism from any background, they are quite dogmatic and precise and militant um, on these things. Dispensationalism never has, uh, and this might be a little contrary to how some people assume the story goes, but dispensationalism never has sort of the um, upper hand in the theological debates that are happening in the fundamentalist world. They're definitely at the table, um, and places like Dallas Seminary grow rapidly in the 1930s and 40s and create their own little ecosystem of graduate students and pastors and even journals and you know books and all that kind of stuff. But they're always in tension with particularly Reformed covenantalist uh, theologians. At that time, uh, one of the main areas of that would be Westminster Theological Seminary, which comes out of the Presbyterian fundamentalist uh, world. Also places like Calvin, um, which have a... a, a Calvin Seminary, which have a, uh, a you know historic reform tradition that is very anathema to a lot of the dispensationalist teachings. Um, these are these are intense debates that, and really, what's at stake are your bona fides as a true Christian, as a as a true fundamentalist, at least. Um, and so, people like Charles Ryrie, who you mentioned, who becomes a very important mid mid twentieth century theologian in the dispensationalist mold. Um, you know, his whole project is to try to define uh, what is dispensationalism, and he writes multiple books on this, um, and how it's unique, how it contributes something unique and needed to the history of theology. Um, and and it's a hard thing to do, and this this happens over and over with dispensationalists because they both have to root themselves in orthodoxy in saying we're actually not doing anything new here. I mean, that that's within the fundamentalist world. That's how you gain credibility. And yet have to explain why what you're doing is needed um, or somehow, uh, they wouldn't say new, but something that has been lost or uh, needs to be retrieved or something like that. And um, that's a very hard uh, sort of line to 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 run on. And uh, Ryrie's not the only one. His mentor at who founded Dallas Seminary, Lewis Berry Chafer, um, was, was very much in this mode as well. Chafer probably produced the most uh, thorough theology of dispensationalism called, it was called Systematic Theology. It was eight volumes, thousands of pages, a dispensationalist view on everything you could imagine um, in theology. Um, but, uh, just to reiterate, dispensationalists aren't unique in doing this. They might be unique today, or you might have come across dispensationalists who are still very much in that mode. I've definitely come across some reform people who have very precise views on, you know, predestination or something else. And just not being in that world, I'm like, wow, why, why do you care so much about this issue? Um, but, uh, but dispensationalists, um, come out of this tradition of contestation and there was never a time where they sat easy in that world. They were always being critiqued 
and um, and you could say even undermined intellectually at least by other evangelical voices who had serious serious concerns about the the system, not only on the merits of it, but also on its effects on the lay people and how it produced uh, sort of people who were and th these are different critiques people who were passive or anti sort of quietist in their engagement with society people who were over interest sort of over concerned about um, geopolitics and the machinations of uh, empires and in conspiracy theories uh, you know ran rampant in in sort of trying to decode dispensationalist end times theology um, or who were and this this takes us to you know later part of the story or who were in it for consumer reasons uh, dispensationalism sells very well and we we know that over the last 50 years um, and it it becomes a major part of the sort of Christian consumer complex is is end times uh, fiction and um, and even nonfiction analysis of the war on terror and every other thing you could imagine um, and there were there's always been concerns within the evangelical world that this is not the right way to be talking about the end of the world to be anticipating the second coming any of that stuff this is sort of warping Christians into um, you know, either bad Christians or just consumers uh, in, in American culture. So those, those critiques have always been there. And that's one reason why dispensations themselves tend to be very precise on what they believe and what they think the right, right way to talk about these things is. So naturally, you definitely know what all the blood moons mean then, right? You've, you've read enough to tell me. <laughs> You know, it's funny. So that's a John Hagee book um, called The Four Blood Moons came out in, I think, 2013. What I loved is, is the, um, the subtitle to that book. It was called The Four Blood Moons. And then the subtitle is Something is About to Happen. And I said, you know, I agree with that subtitle. Uh, something something is about to happen, <laughs> but uh, I don't think he exactly wanted to um, totally plant his flag on any particular thing either. So, <laughs> do you, do you think? Uh, so you mentioned the consumerism aspect of this, and I, I definitely see that. And it seems I, I I don't know. This is just off the cuff armchair, uh, sort of empirical observation that it seems to affect older people more than it does younger people. Um, I think of people like even my own grandfather who's paid for different courses on these sort of things because the people on the TV that he watches uh, tells them this is really important and it's interesting. Or the the different like, you know, when I was at Liberty, the Jerry Falwell Sr., his like old time gospel hour and different things and how he would really take money from basically old widow ladies, uh, convince them to donate to the program for various reasons. I mean, it... Is it true that this is affecting older people more than it is younger people? Yeah, there's definitely a generational story there. Um, I mean, it's important to remember. So the people that are old now obviously were young in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And at that point, this was the... Uh, this was in the zeitgeist. Um, the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s outside of the Bible was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Sold 10 million copies in the 1970s. Um, that was a, basically a popularized version of what Charles Ryrie was writing, you know, big, long books about as a, a professor. Um, the, of course, many of us know about the Left Behind novels in the 90s and 2000s. Those sold uh, upwards of 80 million copies, um, just making sort of very... Uh, simple parts of the dispensationalist eschatology, very familiar to people. I, if you go down the street, even the young people, if you ask them what is the rapture, 
Um, it, they probably almost know nothing about it uh, from a theological perspective, but they probably have a vague sense it's when like the true believers disappear suddenly. And that's a dispensationalist understanding of the rapture. That's There's many ways to read that word. That's the dispensationalist way, and it be, it's become very popular in American society. Um, in terms of the, the generational shift, um, this is, you know, the, the title of my book is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And, and the fall is in part a story of the intellectual theological dismantling of dispensationalism within the seminary world um, to where today there are very few seminaries that teach uh, dispensationalism in some type of systematic way. Um, and, and where they do, uh, somewhere like Dallas Seminary, it's a modified form of the traditional views. It's something called progressive dispensationalism. Progressive has nothing to do with politics. It's, it's about a more uh, technical thing in the in the theology, but the point is it, it, it's much different in in its formulation, and you know this because some of the older people back when this emerged in the eighties and nineties were very people like Ryrie were very critical of progressive dispensationalism, saying it sort of sold out a lot of the distinctive views to the reform people, to their arch rivals over the decades. Um, but that's really what you get today. I mean, there are some sort of independent seminaries that would still be dispensationalist. But there are very few pastors that are being trained today in anything like the dispensationalist system. So all those pastors are, you know, forming their congregations um, in ways that are not conducive to dispensationalism. Um, and then the real legacy of dispensationalism is in the more popular religious culture. Um, and that's where you get Either the the fiction uh, or the movies. There is a new Left Behind. Uh, there's a yet another Left Behind movie coming out, um, starring Kevin Sorbo this time. So uh, you can look forward to that. Um, but uh, but also in in sort of the televangelist world, that might be closer to what Falwell was part of. Um, that's really the legacy of, of dispensationalism, at least right now. There's no sort of active intellectual dimension to it. It's purely political or it's purely cultural. And what's interesting then is it's it's often pulled apart and different pieces of what used to be a system are used for various reasons, either for political arguments or um, or religious arguments. Um, but there's very few people on TV or selling books right now that are sort of dyed in the wool dispensationalists either. Even someone like Falwell, um, I, we probably don't want to go too much into him, but he's very inconsistent on this stuff either and really uses dispensationalist in, in sort of the textbook way, uses dispensationalist theology very instrumentally, uh, depending on what he's trying to do. And when, when a sort of consistent dispensationalist view doesn't really serve whatever he's trying to say, he'll drop it and pick up something else. And so uh, the fall there is is from the perspective of someone like Ryrie or John Walvoord, who ran Dallas Seminary for many decades. Um, you know, they don't really have a system anymore. Um, I mean, they're, they both passed away, so they don't really care. But um, their followers, um, the, the few they have left, um, are shrinking uh, every year. And um, that's not to say that what comes after dispensationalism is necessarily better. Um, I think in some ways there are great improvements and on dispensationalism there's also uh, just a total a sort of a general decline of theological interest um, by a lot of young uh, christians and that means they're being formed by all types of things that are equal to or worse in influence than dispensationalism might be so i i know you're a historian so I, and different historians have different tolerances for answering questions like these so i'm going to ask it anyway is there anything that you think we can really learn um, from understanding the history of dispensationalism that we can apply to various 
aspects of today. So you could make this very much non-prescriptive if you want, but what is it are the main sort of fault lines or different things that we can take away from understanding how this rise and fall has occurred? Yeah. So, um, I'll say a couple of things. One is, um, uh, I, I think it's important as we look at the current state of the church and particularly many people, I actually don't know Jordan, where you land on some of this stuff, but many people bemoan sort of the 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 you know the, the old Mark Knoll question is there a mind to the evangelical world like does the evangelical um, we have when we assess that question we have to realize we're living in the wake of the collapse of dispensationalism so there there was there was this system of theology that animated so much of the evangelical world um, never all of it as, as I've mentioned but a lot of it. Um, and that's gone now. Um, and so uh, I think it's really helpful context to understand, you know, we basically need a uh, a new theology in a lot of ways for a lot of the lay uh, church, um, people who are being formed still more by a televangelist than by anything else. Uh, so that that's an important context I, I just think is missing sometimes when we talk about where the sort of theological story is at in the evangelical church. Um, there's a couple like really interesting insights I had while while doing the research that I thought were things I would I'm definitely taking with me. One is the importance of representing the Bible in visual form. So one of the most famous parts of dispensationalism is like the prophecy chart or the the timeline that shows. Um, what's going to happen next, and it's usually a line with the rapture at one point and Jesus coming back at another point and stuff. Those were really powerful. Those, it, it, almost like if you think about in the medieval church, the the role of stained glass as a way to tell the stories of the Bible to an illiterate um, congregation. Um, dispensationalist prophecy charts, and, and they had all types of charts that weren't just about prophecy, they're about the whole timeline of the Bible, all the dispensations, all that kind of stuff. Um, they were very powerful. And so I think of how Christians today should take note of that, that um, dispensationalists tapped into something there that uh, that can be used. I think of a really interesting, you know, current one is like the Bible Project. If you ever go onto YouTube and there are these sort of uh, art little explainer videos about different parts of the Bible, um, th that can be a really effective way to get your message out. And um, there are certain traditions that are much more print-based or, or see like that as like selling out to pop culture or something. I think dispensations is a story of where that actually really works. Um, so anyway, that, that's one thing. And another is, um, and I end my book with this, is looking at a few, a few theologians who um, are very critical of dispensationalism, people like N.T. Wright, uh, Anglican, or Richard Middleton, um, who writes a lot on, on biblical, what he calls biblical eschatology. But one thing they do that is different than some of the other critics is they don't try to say we shouldn't talk about the end times. Um, they say we should talk about it in the right way. And I think that's – so one thing that dispensationalism I think is really tapped into is that for Christians – Christians are part of a story, um, and it's a story that will have an ending at some point, and we don't have to get too detailed on exactly what that ending is going to be. We know Jesus is coming back, uh, other stuff like that. But um, that is a – that is a important part of the Christian faith. Eschatology isn't just this embarrassing thing that um, has to do with predicting the future or something. It's a it's a core part of the faith. And for so long, and for for understandable reasons, a lot of uh, critics of dispensationalism have basically said, "Let's stop talking about this stuff. Like this is a distraction from more important issues." What I like about people like Wright or Middleton is that they 
they say dispensationalism is wrong on the merits in a lot of ways, but the impulse to see ourselves as an eschatological people or as a people that are moving toward a, a, a culmination of history is not a bad impulse. And we just need to we need to channel that in the right ways. It should call us to do certain things in the world uh, and not others. Um, but but it, it is a you know part of being a fully orb Christian is having um, an eschatology um, and and really living into it. So I think that's something um, that I appreciated over doing this this uh, project. Um, and it's something I'm taking away um, as I'm not someone who's prone to want to do anything with prophecy charts or anything else, realizing, yes, but that's tapping into probably a legitimate impulse by Christians to want to, you know, anticipate um, the the return of Jesus in one sense, or at least the culmination of history in, in the broader sense. Very good. So for those who are interested in reading more of your stuff, Remind me of the other book you've written, and then if you're writing on something new or you got some other projects that you want to just give a promo for, now's the time to do it. Tell me what you're working on and what they should be looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jordan. Um, my first book was called Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations. Much more academic in style than the Dispensationalism book, which is with Erdman's, so it's a little more um, for a broader audience. Um, both of those books and, and sort of everything that I write is on my website, danielghummel.com. Um, and yeah, I, I, um, I'm getting ready to, to write another book proposal here. I'll have something um, cooking up. But um, I, tend, I write every once in a while for Christianity Today and some other sites. I do book reviews and other things, um, usually in the space of um, – I actually don't like to review books on end time stuff. That, that I just do something else. Um, so I was actually trained as a um, diplomatic and intellectual historian along with religion. And so um, that might come through more in the Christian Zionism stuff. But I like reviewing books for Christianity Today that have to do with politics or um, sort of the history of evangelical or Christian engagement with the world. Um, but yeah, Daniel G. Hummel is is where all my stuff is. Very awesome. Well, this has been great. Um, so if if you're in Wisconsin or I guess Northern Illinois or somewhere like that, and it's not totally freezing outside right now, go check out what all he's doing there with what, what's what did you call it? Man, I've forgotten the name of the house, the upper house. Upper house. That's right. Yeah. It's a beautiful day today, by the way. Um, we got 60 degrees. The, the leaves are oh. changing. It's a great day to be in, in Madison. A few weeks from now, it'll be horrible, but right now yeah. it's great. So <laughs> yeah, I got one of my friends, Connor, he's in, uh, Michigan. And I think I'm like, you got like what, three weeks of fall that are just absolutely amazing. But then after that, it's winter for six months. And I don't that's know right. if I could do that. But I know that what is it the 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 you betcha guy uh, who does videos? I crack up at him yeah. all the time, and I think he's like in Wisconsin or something. I think he's in so. Minnesota. I don't quote. Oh, me on okay. That. He might be Minnesota, but um, yeah, you know, I'm not a native to here. I, as I mentioned, I I grew up a missionary kid in Colorado Springs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I thought I knew what winters were like in Colorado. Um, <laughs> I did not until moving here. Either. <laughs> so the people who live here, who grew up here, um, really enjoy the winter it's it's hard for me to even say that because i don't understand it but um you'd be surprised people love the the cloudy it gets dark at like 3 p.m in, in january yeah. february um some people like that <laughs> yeah i mean i grew up in illinois uh southern illinois but uh, you know I, the flat the the piercing cold winds because there's literally nothing to stop the wind from blowing <laughs> like i i very much remember it and uh i don't look at it fondly but for some reason i did like those murky like gray days i don't know why my wife is like you're crazy you must have some sort of disorder but 
Here I stand. I, I, like, I like one of them when it's three to four weeks in a row, like 28 days in a row. It gets a little old. So. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> cool, man. Well, this has been a lot of fun. So everybody, you need to check out uh, DanielGHummel.com. And I think, Daniel, you're on Twitter, too. I think I searched right before this and found you. So... I am. I'm not really active. I, I more lurk than actually uh, post. But yeah, whenever I write something, I post it on there too. Yeah. Well, there you go. So if you're interested in what he's doing, you can go follow him and you'll find out uh, as soon as it's available. You can go to his Twitter and find it. So do check that out. Um, I always enjoy talking about all sorts of things like this. Religious history is super fun. So thank you, Dan. And everybody's been tuning in. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we will talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.